Hi, it's Julie. Before we start the show, I just want to thank you for listening. And if you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps get our show out in front of new listeners. Thanks again for listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. We hope you enjoy this interview. You're listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich, and I'm here today with Anne Mack, who's the Director of Insights Marketing at Facebook. Hi, Anne. Thank you for Hi. being here. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you on the show. We are here at the Facebook offices. There are our copious snacks. Happy to be here. <laughs> um, so as, before we jump into our conversation about your career and some of the exciting things we're going to talk about today, want to always start talking about coffee. Mm. Um, we're not drinking any coffee right now, but what is your coffee drink of choice? So I don't believe they've made their way to New York yet, but I love Phil's coffee. Oh my gosh, have you heard the of Phil's? best. It's so good. <laughs> and they have a Phil's on Classic Campus at Facebook. So quite frequently, I have to get on one of the earliest shuttles out in the morning, and it's the thought of Phil's that keeps me going. <laughs> <laughs> so I like their Tesora with a little bit of skim on top, and it's just so delightful. Yeah, why don't we have Phil's here on the East Coast? bring it yeah when I was visiting San Francisco a couple summers ago I would like walk the highest hill in San Francisco to get <laughs> to get filled that's how good it is it's so good and I feel like I was a it was like a mint iced coffee Ooh, was, uh, mint mojito yes iced a coffee. mint mojito iced coffee so good oh my gosh okay this is amazing we want to talk about your career path um, our listeners love to kind of find out all the details. I know sometimes it's like, does anyone really want to hear this? But we do. All the details of how you got where you are today. So anything relevant, even before college, that was, you know, experience that you think contributed to your career, but then college and internships and kind of what the path was to get you to your current job. So it's interesting because I was thinking about my first ever job in life and it was a bit of a foreshadowing because I was a paper girl for the <laughs> Cleveland Plain Dealer. I grew up outside of Cleveland and my brother and I had a paper route and we would get up in the wee hours, pre-dawn hours of the morning and stuff newspapers and deliver them to our neighbors. Um, and it was kind of a foreshadowing because I eventually made my way into journalism. Right. The paper route did not last long, however, <laughs> How long? because we didn't like to collect dues. So the ROI didn't really pay out for us. Um, but I, I had a series of jobs throughout high school and, and college. But when I went to college at the Ohio State University, home to the Buckeyes, I, I decided to go in undecided. My siblings had, I have three siblings ahead of me, and they had all gone in, declared majors, and had switched those majors within one or two years. And I'm like, I'm not going to make the same mistake. I'm going in undecided, blank slate, take a lot of general ed classes and find my way. So I took communications, English, theater, dabbled in this and that. And by the end of my sophomore year, I found my calling. I took a journalism 101 class and I was like, this really combines all of my interests and passions. I am a hugely curious person, so I'm constantly asking a lot of questions <laughs> um, and not settling for base answers. And I love to write. And this gave me the ability to ask those questions, connect seemingly disconnected dots, synthesize a lot of information, and <laughs> combat my procrastinator personality <laughs> because you have to write really tight right. under deadline to a compelling in a compelling way for an intended audience. Uh, so I found my calling and ended up going into journalism. Interestingly, at Ohio State at the time, they had three different tracks. Uh, one was dedicated to news writing, another to broadcast journalism, and another to public relations. And I chose the public relations route because I was like, oh, that seems very practical mm -hmm. and I should be able to find a job in that. And I just got bit by the news writing bug. And through one of my public relations internships, I met this old curmudgeon of a guy who used to be a <laughs> newspaper man. And he was like, Anne, if you ever want to go into newspapers, 
do it right out of college because you get paid dirt, but you learn a lot. And that was one of the best pieces of advice that I was ever given. So after graduation, I started at the Mansfield News Journal. Now, Mansfield is this very small mid-size, well, I would say mid-size city between Cleveland, Ohio and Columbus, Ohio. And their big claim to fame is that it's home to the only death row prison in Ohio. Right. <laughs> right? So the old reformatory there was Shawshank Redemption, if you've ever seen that yes. movie. That's, that's the old reformatory. And I was put on the crime beat. I was their crime reporter. So, so. that's really important if their key <laughs> exactly. source of business is prison. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So in the mornings, I would make my rounds, see the criminal investigators at the police department, visit the sheriff's department, go to the courts, go to Mansi, which is the Mansfield Correctional Institution, and pick up stories along the way. And it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times because it was the best education mm -hmm. I could have ever received. I could have spent oodles of money going to graduate school for journalism, but I learned so much in that short amount of time, churning out four news stories per day, learning about what's a good lead versus what's not a good lead, what's cliche versus what's not cliche, and again, how to write tight under a very short deadline. That's the best of times. <laughs> it was the worst of times because I was covering things like an inmate stabbing another inmate right. 40 times in his back, a prison riot, a shaken baby, a hit and run, murders. And it, it was really hard yeah, for me lot. not to take that stuff home with me. And I didn't want to become desensitized mm -hmm. to it. I, I wanted to be attuned to it and really uh, emote. <laughs> and it was very hard in that way. So great learning. I eventually moved on to something that was a little lighter. <laughs> moved on to the publishing industry in Cleveland, okay. which comprised of two publishing houses, one of which was Penton Media, which is the one I worked for. And it was a series of trade magazines. And the trade magazines that I worked on were so, so niche. Uh, <laughs> they were called Government Procurement. Wow, okay. And Government Product News. Wow. So these magazines were aimed at procurement professionals in government. Talk about like That's so super, specific. super specific and niche. Um, ultimately, I call it my vacation because I had such a challenging uh, time in right. Mansfield. I, I needed a break, and this was very like easy breezy just chill uh, work environment but ultimately I was a little too ambitious for that and 20 years ago back in June of 99 mm. I, I came to visit a friend here in New York City and it was one of those moments that sparked a notion in me like if I'm going to make it in journalism and in my career I have to be where it's all at and that's New York City and seeing a friend do it like getting by on next to nothing with these exorbitant rents right. in the city made me, inspired me, and made me think, I can do this too. So I set a goal for myself, and I said, by January of 2000, I'll have moved to New York, and I'll have a job there. Sure enough, and I had no idea how serendipitous this was and how perfect the timing was at the time. I was super naive. <laughs> but in December of 99, I had about four interviews lined up. Half of them were with dot-coms, of course, uh, and one of which was for Adweek magazine wow. to be an interactive reporter oh my God. Like, for the what? magazine. <laughs> were you like, what is this? <laughs> exactly. What is that exactly? Uh, and it was the best offer by far, which wasn't much, but for me at the time, role, it, was, assuming, it was a new role, a okay. uh, new section of the magazine. Interestingly enough, the section of the magazine was called Adweek IQ. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> It's all coming full circle. Yes. Facebook IQ. No, Facebook Adweek IQ. IQ. Right. And it initially started out as a quarterly insert in Adweek, Brandweek, and Media Week magazines, and it was named Interactive Quarterly. But it became so popular and so in demand, and there was a lot of ad support around it, that it was a it became a weekly insert in no time. So I was covering the interactive industry during the dot the first dot com boom, which was the best time to be in New York because I was very young and I was able to 
see this moment in history yeah, play amazing. out in a big, bold, and bad way. And not be in the middle of it. In Ex terms of well, needing it to, in the middle of it, but not needing it to pay your rent. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was an observer and a reporter of it, and it was an amazing, amazing time. But of course, I, I would ask every business, well, what is your business model? And everybody was like, advertising. And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> and it was, an, it was the Ooh. internet was in its early days. Yeah. And a lot of these business models were well before their time. It had not reached a, a level of saturation that these businesses could thrive or even survive. So as the story goes, the dot-com boom went bust, uh -huh. and the interactive reporting staff was redeployed. And I was redeployed to Adweek proper, covering the quote-unquote traditional ad industry. Okay. <laughs> so I was covering, you know, agencies like J. Walter Thompson, what was then known as, this is a mouthful, Messner of Vittieri, Burger, McNamee, Schmetterer, Euro RSEG. <laughs> Say that five times fast. I'm they like, used to have their receptionists do it, no. and it was amazing. <laughs> um, it's a mouthful. Um, it's now Havas, but very simple name. And they were like, see, we showed those dot-commers. Right. This traditional ad world's going to survive. So they survive. felt like they had defeat because they had survived clearly, they had survived. but not changed their business model. Exactly, okay. exactly. And in the back of my mind, and also verbally to them, I'm like, "Listen, this internet thing—it's not going to go away." Right? They were like, "Oh, well, we beat that." Yes. Okay. Exactly. It's <laughs> not going to go away. You should pay attention right. to it, and you should prepare for it because there is going to be a build back up. And sure enough, after the bus, there was a build back up, and there was a need for an interactive section yet again and an interactive editor. And I had enough belief in it over the years to continue to um, deliver a daily newsletter to our readers. Wow. So I had continued covering it despite the fact that we didn't have the ad support around right. it. So when the time did come back, it was easy tra to transition into the role of interactive editor at Adweek. Wow. That's, yeah. You believed in it the whole time, I though. Did. You really did. I did. And this is a little fun fact. As a part of uh, the interactive beat, I covered this thing called wireless advertising. Ooh, la la. <laughs> so this was in 2000, 2001. It's very early. Very early, early, early. early. I was still ca carrying around a satellite dish for a phone. <laughs> and these these executives would come into the offices and tell me about these these plans to one day deliver ads to people on their mobiles based on their location. It just blew my mind. Did you think at the time, like, yeah, right. Or did you were you excited about it? Did it seem like, oh, this seems realistic. You guys have a plan. It was one of those so future forward things right. that I was like trepidatious, mm -hmm. but at the same time I was like extremely excited right. about the possibility of it. Uh, so much so that I would lean into stories around it because it was more future forward in its bend. Uh, which leads me to my next yeah. uh, chapter and uh you know, as a journalist, you, you become such an insider and you foster sources within the agencies and the companies you cover, but at the same time, you're still a bit of an outsider looking in. Mm -hmm. So J. Walter Thompson came a call in and uh, they asked if I would help out with their corporate communications. More specifically, uh, be the corporate communications writer supporting then global CEO Bob Jeffrey. He had just been named the global CEO and he needed support with his internal as well as external communications and speeches. And it was one of those opportunities where I was like, I love journalism, but I also want to see what goes on yeah. on the other side. Yeah, and and what does that job, I mean, we, it's so funny because we talk about internal communications a lot, just kind of as an industry, but I think a lot of times it's like a question mark, especially when you're working for maybe one executive, like what does that job, what was that job description? Like what else were you kind of planning on doing? It was one of those jobs that I think we were making it up in real time. <laughs> um, one of the first weeks on the job where I was like, what did I do? Right. Uh, one of his executive assistants approached me about writing a birthday card for a client. And I was like, huh, I don't think this is what I signed up for. But sure enough, it, there were much 
bigger, more strategic assignments. Right, but it was just words. If there are words, you're his writer, right? Exactly. Could you write this birthday message? You're like, happy birthday to you? (laughs) That sounds like a message. Okay. Uh, Very, very original, right? right? Uh, So at the time, um, Bob was reinventing J. Walter Thompson because, as you know, J. Walter Thompson was this big behemoth Madison Avenue Mm -hmm. um, agency, and it had been around for 140 years. And he saw the promise of digital marketing, and he had just brought on Ty Montague um, and Rosemary Ryan, and they were also uh, real leaders Mm -hmm. in the interactive marketing space. So he really wanted to reinvent the agency um, and what people thought of it and what clients we attracted to it. So it was a time where we we renamed uh, J. Walter Thompson JWT, mm-hmm. and it was a signal that we were fast, flat, and fun. Great. And it uh, to this day, I remember the the three Fs. Yeah, you I'm, still. I'm a really sucker. <laughs> I'm a sucker for alliteration. Uh, but it was a really nice signifier of what we should be doing and the kind of work that we aspired to. Uh, so by virtue of that, I wrote a lot of internal communications mm-hmm. to communicate that out broadly to the company and to get people enrolled and enacting that vision that he had mapped out. Um, externally, we also had a lot of communications mm-hmm. that we right. had to. and. Bob had to talk the talk and walk the walk, so he had to show up at industry events and really speak about this vision and show how we were enacting it through the work that we were doing on behalf of our clients. So that was really interesting, but having been a journalism, having had my own byline, writing some for someone as their ghost writer would not satiate me right. for very long. So fortunately at the time, I was reporting into the CMO, and her name was Marion Salzman. Her name is Marion Salzman. <laughs> uh, and if you know Marion, uh, you will never forget her. Uh, <laughs> she is a preeminent trend spotter, mm-hmm. and she is responsible for popularizing the terms like metrosexual and sleep is the new sex. And she was super powerful and had an idea a minute. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of reporting into her, I started doing trends work myself spotting cultural shifts and writing about them and communicating them to our client partners. Uh, She left in 2008, and at the time, it was one of those moments where it was was a pivotal moment, actually, Mm -hmm. because it was like, okay, do I wait to be told what to do, or do I figure it out and just do it? And I was much younger at the time, and I realized that while Marion, because she had been doing trend spotting for two decades plus, could go into the CMO or the CEO at Unilever or Ford and say, I think the wind is blowing that way, I couldn't do that. I needed data to back up my assertions. So what I did was team very closely with our head of research to combine our qualitative trends research with quant to see where consumer attitudes and behaviors were shifting over time and to package that in really meaningful monthly and annual reports. And we released our 10 trends annual report as well as our 100 things to watch um, every November, December, and they became these cultural markers of sorts that weren't just followed by the marketing and ad industry, but followed by the media at right. large. Right, amazing. Yeah, so it, it was really, really an amazing time, and I'm, I'm still very proud of the work that we did because through it we built the practice of JWT intelligence from the ground up, and the legacy still lives on today, yeah. which is amazing. It'll be amazing to see what happens with a Wonderman-Thompson merger right. now that that has happened. And how did that feel? I mean, feel is a more emotional word, but feel because it's your career. Like, you went from being a journalist, which is a very specific type of job, like you said, with a byline, like you're out, you know, out in front, to this other internal communications job, but then kind of away from... Real, I mean, still media, still the world, you know, touching all the same places, but really away from journalism entirely, like at the end with the trend setting. Like, how did that, you know, how did that feel? How did that transition kind of go? Interestingly, I think 
journalism is a through line throughout my career. Mm -hmm. What I was doing at JWT and what I'm still doing today at Facebook is very journalistic in a way because it is, you know, reading everything I can get my hands on, doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of influencers and experts across multiple fields, connecting seemingly disconnected dots, synthesizing a lot of information and packaging it up in new and interesting ways to appeal to their intended audiences. What I just described is right. very journalistic yes. in nature. Mm -hmm. And journalism is itself has evolved to be um, multifaceted. It's not just about writing for print. It's also about podcasts. It's also about, you know, uh, launching like uh, videos that go along with it or data visualizations. That's very much a part of what marketing is evolving into today. Right. Yeah. And we, we often talk on this podcast about like the skill set around communications jobs or media jobs that they are really transferable. So as everything shifts like to as someone who works in this field, like to have the confidence that you do have that skill set, which your career shows that. Like you took one skill set and applied it across many different, with seemingly different things. The skills that you learn are so transferable mm -hmm. across multiple careers, multiple disciplines, multiple functions, and that's pretty powerful. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, and it's an interesting way to think about journalism majors, because I think that is a lot of the attitude around like majoring in journalism right now. Um, it's great to think about. And then what happened? How did you end up here at Facebook? <laughs> then what happened? So I had been at J. Walter Thompson for nearly 10 years, which is a huge milestone. Yeah, and wow. An anomaly. Uh, quite frequently when you're at a in the agency world, you hop around. Right. Uh, but I had such an amazing thing going on there and a lot of autonomy uh, because the leaders of the agency trusted me, uh, but a lot of impact because our trends work was used as a business development mechanism mm -hmm. in order to foster business with existing clients or as a door opener to new clients. It was also used as a PR mechanism uh, because it associated J. Walter Thompson, again, this big behemoth of an agency, with future forward insights and trends. So it, I had a really good thing going on and we continue to um, evolve the practice year over year to keep it new and interesting for me as well as my team members in the agency at large. But it was one of those moments where I, I was ready. And again, it was one of those outsider looking in moments because a lot of the trends that we were spotting were driven by these tectonic shifts that were happening through technology and mobile technology in particular. So I was covering trends such as mobile is the everything hub. And this was around the time of the launch of the first iPhone mm -hmm. ever in 2007, or mobile is the gateway to opportunity and how emerging markets were using mobile as a gateway to opportunity, educational opportunity, entrepreneurial opportunity, economic opportunity, and otherwise. Or trickle up innovation where emerging markets were hacking solutions via technology and the developed world was taking cues from them because their solutions were so revelatory. Right. So. I, I had been approached over the years by other agencies saying, I want what you did for JWT <laughs> over here. And I always paused because I was like, okay, yeah, I could do that. And I could probably do that for a bigger paycheck, but would that be satisfying? Right. And if you liked it and you had a good right. thing and you'd be doing the same work, it's well, not exactly. a Exactly. And it would be like Groundhog's Day. Right. So when I decided it was time, I... It, like usually when I make these decisions they're very like okay you know I know and I realized I don't want to stay in in the agency world I want to go into technology because I've been actually covering technology for nearly 15 years now and rather than observing it reporting it trend spotting it I actually wanted to be a part of a company that was actively shaping these mm -hmm. technologies that are so integral to people's behaviors today. And I found, randomly, found this job on Facebook and it, it was as if it was written for me. You just found it, like you I, went on a website. I went on LinkedIn one <laughs> night. I was targeting like just the tech companies. I also was ready to move to the West Coast, just targeting I the tech companies. But when those things work out. And it was just out. like, whew, 
that's my job. It's as if it was written for me. And it was to um, be a part of the launch team for what is now known as Facebook IQ, which is our insights offering aimed at advertisers and mark advertisers and agencies. And I, I was just pulled to it. Uh, and it was, it was just such a great opportunity because if you're sitting on uh, the agency side, you're thinking, oh, you know, Facebook must have all these insights about people's behaviors and attitudes, and why aren't they, why aren't they out there talking about that? And to be able to shape that insights practice and what it could and should be was pretty powerful. And to be a part of that launch team and define uh, what that the possibilities are in and around Amazing. That. Amazing. That's yeah. so great. And and tell us about the move across the country. Because, mm. I mean, dude, this is New York Women in Communications. We do talk to women from all over. But I don't think we often talk about what the – what it feels like to move for your job and what the challenges of that are both personally and professionally. So that's a major move. It's a huge move. I had been in New York for 15 years. Oh my gosh. So I, I'm back in New York this week and whenever I come back, I'm like, oh, it's so easy. And people are like, New York, easy? I'm like, it's so easy. <laughs> I know the city like the back of my hand. Right. Uh, and while, you know, things come and go, the the neighborhoods stay the same, the feel of it stays the th- same. It's just very familiar and familial to me. Right. Um, because it was my home for so long. So it was a big leap to move to the West Coast. But in, in my last few years of New York, whenever I visited San Francisco, I would come back saying, I feel a few inches taller. Mm-hmm. There's something different about it. There's something lighter about it. And I was ready for that transition. Um, and I feel like everything I'm about to say is so cliche and has been <laughs> said before. So disclaimer alert. Uh, but it is, it's definitely an earlier to rise, earlier to bed environment. Um, there is more willingness uh, of my friends out there to get up and get out and mm-hmm. go explore. Nature. That's what everyone Nature, says. Yeah. <laughs> Moving well, out of New York. Whether it's in the city or outside of the city yeah. on any given weekend, I'm going up to Sonoma or going up to Tahoe or exploring the national parks. It's pretty amazing. Whereas while there was some appetite here to go to the beaches or to go skiing, it was quite frequently a uh, a big scale production to make that happen. Um, and I miss New York desperately, but I love my life in San Francisco. That's great. That's good. It's a good place to come back and visit, right? <laughs> 100%. And were there challenges just professionally starting in the new job in a new city? Like, does that feel more overwhelming or was it kind of easy and it's good to be getting the fresh start, you know, across the board anyway? Uh, that's a good question. I felt like. It was just challenging nonetheless because it was a brand new company mm-hmm. um, and there's just constant change at Facebook and I had to learn very quickly to be malleable um, to that change. Mm-hmm. So I think the the challenge was more professional versus personal mm-hmm. because once I got settled into my personal life and I have a slew of friends out there that welcomed me with open arms, oh, it became fabulous. easier. Right, that's great. But that's great to think about also just in terms of even if you're not moving across the country, like when you start a new job, knowing it's almost like a blank slate, you're going to have to adapt. You had been at a company for a long time. I'm sure there were a lot of things you were quite comfortable doing a certain way that just were that was not an option anymore. 100%. So I talked about how I had a lot of autonomy at J. Walter Thompson. At Facebook, it's all about cross-functionality. Mm-hmm because you want to ensure that your cross-functional stakeholders buy in and are supported and invested in what you're doing because the more people who are involved and engaged, the more successful you and the marketing programs that you are developing will be. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge learning for me because I was so used to doing my own thing, communicating what I was doing, but not getting all of this cross-functional stakeholder feedback. So managing that cross-functional stakeholder feedback and getting that enrollment and that engagement at every level Uh, was a huge learning for me, but a pretty powerful learning because if you don't have that, then why are you doing it? Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) 
The job that you have now is definitely a job that didn't exist. I mean, it didn't exist. How long ago did you start? When did you start? Five years ago. Okay, so this didn't, you know, and basically throughout your career, many of these jobs have not existed. What's some advice that you have kind of for, we've talked a little bit about the skills and transferring your skills, but for people who are especially working in the media industry, certain jobs may be disappearing, new jobs are appearing, they may be looking to transfer into technology companies, which might be very different, even if you're doing communications within, what are, you know, what are some key learnings you have or some advice for people who want to make that transition? It's interesting because until you asked that question, I never really thought about <laughs> it. Because if you think about my titles over the past, over the trajectory of a large part of my career, I had interactive editor, right. director of trends, never heard of it, <laughs> director of insights marketing, right. These are all like new titles. Right. Even when we sat down today, I'm like, okay, director of insights marketing? Are we sure that's right? Is this a typo? Well, and I think to help answer that question, it would be helpful to describe what I do Mm -hmm. because that's the crux of it. And it is my and my team's job and responsibility to package up research, consumer research, ads research, product research, in new and compelling ways for our intended audiences, agencies, marketers, small and medium-sized businesses, and amplify them across our owned and earned channels. Mm -hmm. And one of our primary channels of activation is Facebook IQ. So if you think about what we do, because we extrapolate insights from research and then we market those insights to the industry insights marketing is a really good way to describe it it's exactly what it is so my counsel to people is don't make up your job title like look at the skills that you have the transferable skills and where they're well suited so if you look at you know a jobs board or if you looked at linkedin you might look at a job title and automatically disqualify yourself but double click and look at all the skills and experiences necessary and i would say if it's oriented towards you you'll check three quarters of those boxes and it's okay if you don't check the last quarter because no one ever does Mm -hmm. and if a job doesn't stretch you in new and interesting ways then why consider it Mm -hmm. It's really great advice. It's funny, I'm doing some hiring right now and I'm really struggling with the titles of the jobs because I know people aren't necessarily looking beyond them and if they did, all the information that they would need is in there. So I love that advice of look beyond the title. I think it's really, really important. You have had many roles where you've had a team and you've had to manage a team. What are some of your favorite parts of managing people, maybe some of your not favorite parts and some of your, you know, the key learnings from being a manager. Yeah, it's I I keep in touch with a lot of my team members that I've managed over the years and it's really amazing and delightful to see where they've gone on in their careers. Uh, I think I my favorite part um, there's so many favorite parts of managing. Uh, But one of my favorite parts is just sitting down in a one-to-one capacity with a team member and jamming on an idea. Mm -hmm. Just being super present and bandying about about different directions an idea could take and it gets stronger by virtue of that and having impact into Uh, ensuring that that idea or that concept or that marketing program is the strongest and boldest and biggest it could be and helping them harness the energy behind it because sometimes sometimes people just need to be given the permission Mm -hmm. to think big because sometimes they're stuck in you know what they think something should be and if you start jamming and and hopefully drawing out inspiration from that conversation then it becomes you you realize the possibilities and they realize their potential that's great what are some of if what are some things you might very easy management tips you might give to a first time manager like someone who's just doing it for the first time has no idea i know there's a lot this is another cliche alert. <laughs> uh, because I made this mistake. Um, and it's not, when I was a first time manager, I, I believe I was a micromanager. And I apologize to anyone I've micromanaged. And y- you've been an individual contributor for so long. 
And if you're successful, you believe that your way is the right way, but you have to understand that there's another way mm-hmm. and they might have another way and it might be a better way. Right. And you have to be open to that and you have to allow for that rather than telling them what the right way is, you have to give them the freedom to find their way. Mm-hmm. And quite frequently, it's a better way. Right. And I would also say that you need to surround yourself with people who are better than you. As a first-time manager, because you're managing people who are probably in your same age range, you might feel threatened by people if they're smarter than you. I would say hire people who are smarter and better than you and (laughs) could replace you tomorrow because you want to build that strong bench. That's great. I love that. That's great advice. We love to ask our guests classically annoying interview questions. So these are questions that you may have asked in an interview or been asked, just that you typically get and maybe you're like, why am I being asked? This has nothing to do with this job or it's kind of like a trick. Um, So I always invite our guests to either answer these how they really want to answer them or how you would advise someone to answer them oh, in an interview. So your Ooh. your choice. Okay. And we can go back and forth if you want. Um, and you can let us know if this is really how you'd answer it or how you'd recommend answering it. So the first question is, where do you see yourself five years from now? <sighs> this is a really hard question because I've, over the past couple of years, I've been doing visions mm-hmm. um, and and writing a vision based on, and I do um, do them on my birthday, which is October 9th. So October 9th of 2020, what will I have accomplished? Where am I sitting? How am I feeling? And that's pretty powerful because it if you if you orient yourself around that and revisit it on a regular basis, it serves as a forcing function. If you also share it with people, it serves as a forcing function. Do you share it? I do. Who do you share it with? My family. One year I shared it with my entire team because I wanted my team to hold me accountable for certain things and know that I don't accomplish everything on the vision, but it is pretty powerful. So for instance, last year my parents celebrated their 50th anniversary and I really wanted to do a family gathering with my siblings, my nieces and nephews, my parents in celebration of that. And I knew that I needed to drive that. Right. (laughs) And it was the hardest thing I have ever done. Hardest project of your career. Hardest project of my (laughs) career because everybody had very small windows of time that they could get together. My family is far flung across the U.S. So I had to triangulate all these different schedules, all these different logistical details to land on a place that would work for all of us. And there was a lot of angst in the interim. Ultimately, we did it, and it was the best thing. Where'd you go? We went to, again, very <laughs> random, but because of the triangulation, we ended up in Branson, Missouri, oh, which I had never Oh, the show choir capital. <laughs> yes, show choir capital. Showboat. We went on a showboat. I did know that. And, and, and it was family-friendly. It was affordable. We had fun activities every day. And uh, some of the people who were detractors came up to me (laughs) during the vacation and they're like, I am so sorry I gave you such a hard time, Anne. This is the most wonderful thing that we are doing for our parents. So so it was, and the nieces and nephews loved it. But if I hadn't had that vision, if I hadn't shared that vision, that vision, I could have easily said, you know what, this is too much trouble. Not going to make it happen. Right. That's so funny. I just also planned a 70th birthday getaway for my mother-in-law. And I feel like that's an entirely different podcast or episode of like how to balance these things when you, I mean, they're like full-time projects. They're full-time projects. I was like, oh, I also have to do my work. Yes. This is when you have to delegate. So at some point I had to delegate different assignments to different siblings. Right, but you probably treated it like, and you had a plan. Yes. Treated it like anything else that you would project manage. Right. (laughs) Well, I'm glad they appreciate it and had fun. I have some follow-up questions on the vision because that's like, I love this kind of thing. This is my dream looking, you know, looking forward. So you do this on your birthday Mm -hmm. and do you have an outline of like, this year, next year, kind of five years, or? So I bucket it into three buckets. One is professional. What do I have, where do I want to be in my professional life? Where do I want me and my team to be 
in a year's time, then personal. Um, so in terms of relationships, family, personal friendships, et cetera, where do I want to be? And then spiritual. And spiritual could mean so many different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be you know, fostering a community. It could be volunteering. It could be for me. I try to meditate every day, at least for five to 10 minutes. Uh, so where do you want to be in your spiritual life? And what do you want to hold yourself accountable to? I love this. Oh my gosh. I'm going to ask all our listeners should do this. That's (laughs) so, but it's good. You know, we, um, a previous guest had talked about doing quarterly check-ins. So checking, and I'm not, I don't even remember if she said it on the podcast or to me after. So I'll say what it was, just checking in with yourself once a quarter. And honestly, like it was almost, I I said, okay, I'm going to try this because I love this kind of stuff. I love to make lists. I love to plan future. But it was almost like too much was what once a quarter felt overwhelming. Yeah. So on your birthday or the day before your birthday, the day after, I think feels realistic and so great. Well, and, and the trick is to, I have it on my phone, so I have to continue to refer back to it right. to ensure that I am actually doing the things that I had mapped out. And and. Also be forgiving with yourself. Right. We are super ambitious people, and sometimes our vision is just jam-packed with too much. So really understanding what is important to you and what you're really going to prioritize rather than to put too much in there that you wouldn't be able to accomplish and then you just abandon it all together. Right. So, and I like I like the idea of just looking at it. It's a little, it's a little bit of a smaller life plan yes. if you're looking at the next year. Okay, that's great. You're hired for whatever job I'm hiring for because I'm stealing that idea. Um, The next question is, what has been the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome professionally? Myself. (laughs) I'm serious. So what does that mean? (laughs) Well, I, I think of myself as a pretty confident person, but at the same time, Self-doubt mm-hmm. tends to creep in. Uh, in the tech world, they call it imposter syndrome mm-hmm. because you are surrounded by the most brilliant people. I have never worked for or with as many smart humans in my life. And sometimes you question, what am I doing here? Am I? How did I make it into this like very uh, high-quality group? Mm-hmm. And then you have to realize you made it on your own merit. Right. You made it based on your experience, based on your skills, and based on the value that you bring bring to the table each and every day. And I find that when I'm encountering obstacles, quite frequently they're self-made obstacles. Right. That's really interesting. It's That's good to be aware of. I mean, mm-hmm. I think also just to even know to look towards yourself mm-hmm. then. Um, there's also and probably Facebook being a major you know major technology company they do that too there's this trend of asking very complicated questions at interview weird questions right at interviews um, and we love to bring those also to this for fun so this one actually comes from Salesforce and the question is if you could sit next to one person on a transcontinental flight <laughs> who would it be so good I love these questions. <laughs> This is sentimental, so forgive me, but I would say my grandma, Catherine. She passed away back in 2007, and she was amazing on so many fronts. She was incredibly fun, funny, insightful, wise, and I still, to this degree, channel her and her energy and what would grandma say? And I would love to have a transcontinental conversation and who with her. Yeah, that would be nice. A long flight, like to South Africa Very or something. Very long flight, yes. That's such a good answer. These are You would be a great interview in terms of a job <laughs> interview. I'm like, you're hired. I mean, I'm going to steal you away. Thanks. We have reached our lightning round mm-hmm. where just throw things, questions out there to you and answer um, with not only the first thing that comes to your head, but also what you actually want your answer to be. But... The first is the best job you've ever had. I would say it was my first job out of college, the Mansfield News Journal. It was the best and worst job. Love it. As I said, best of times, worst of times. The biggest learning. I learned so much in the span of the year, but it was the hardest job that I've ever had, too. And when you were in it, like, so you're, you know, doing this daily slog, could you see the good parts? Or was it mostly feeling bad? It's only in looking back yeah. that I'm like that. 
I would not trade that for the world. Right. But when you were there, it felt hard. hard. <laughs> and how long was that again? A year. Okay. <laughs> still, Very it still hard. shaped everything, exactly. everything that you did. Sometimes here at Facebook, are you like you do something or you know use a skill and you credit it back to your time at one hundred percent. That's great. One hundred percent. They're like, oh, you can turn that around really quickly, and I'm like, have you ever worked under deadline? Right. <laughs> That's so great. I mean, I think like the main theme from this conversation with you that I'm taking away is just like the transferable skills, mm -hmm. like even. As we're talking and, you know, you work very deeply in data, which we all know is so important, and I still feel like so many of us, especially working in communications, we know it's important. We might not understand how to access it or read it or even have the access to it. So, but it sounds, talking to you, much less scary. Like that you can take jobs and it's really, you know, you can use the same skills to dive in. Um, and I think that's really interesting and will be great for people to hear. 100%. You just have to have the curiosity gene right. and be able to be a lifelong learner. And were you a number, I mean, the data you're working with isn't necessarily all numbers, but were you kind of a numbers person or no? To a degree, I became more of a numbers person at J. Walter Thompson okay. when I was working with quantitative research and understanding how to analyze it and shape it into a story that made sense and mm -hmm. simplify what could be super complex. Right. And it's interesting, like the direction that our industry is going, you can, you know, before it was a lot of like, mm, it seems loosey-goosey like you're doing the right thing, but now it's so measurable. 100%. So I think that learning about it just sparks my brain of like, what kind of courses are going to be available and what kind of tracks and schools? Because I think learning about this, like, you have to understand it. We're beyond the point of not caring about measurements, right? Well, and it's it's not just about the consumer insights. It's also about the, the marketing measurements. Right. So whatever we do within our marketing organization, we measure it, and we have to ensure that we're measuring the right things. Mm -hmm. What attitudes do we want to change? What behaviors do we want to move? And how do they ladder up to our overall organizational goals? and understand what good looks like because mm -hmm. data in isolation is not powerful at all. It's like right. it's just a number. It could be good, it could be bad, but I have no idea how to judge this. So I have to understand the benchmarks in and around that as well as our goals associated with it. So in order to be a great marketer today, you have to be a data-driven marketer. Right. And more doesn't always equal more when it comes to that. It's getting super precise with what success looks like and what those measures of success should be. Yeah, it's great. And it's, I mean, as you're talking about it, and you said this earlier too, like it's all though still about telling a story. Mm -hmm. Like when you say it like that, but you know, when you said it's using the journalism skills, it really feels like a different career almost than what we currently think of like oh a data person like she's looking in spreadsheets all day I mean you're doing the same thing you're doing as a journalist like pulling out all the data and telling the story from it 100% same thing and you have to be super curious because here again in in our marketing organization we're in a test and learn environment and we're constantly looking okay why did this perform this way? What was happening? What could we do better? What worked, what didn't, and why? And how can we optimize our marketing for the future? Mm -hmm. So it, again, it's about being curious and not just settling for the baseline metrics and really digging in and understanding what's behind them. Yeah, it's great. And it's something that really any of us can dive into, which I think is exciting. It's in very of, accessible. Yes, that's great. What's the worst job you've ever had? Again, also. it's the Mansfield News Journal. <laughs> Best and worst. Best and worst. Uh, because of the subject matter I was covering, which I referred to earlier, from murders to hit and runs and prison riots, it was really tough, and it was tough not to take that home with me mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You need some deprogramming after mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You, you shared a great piece of career advice earlier in the interview, but are there other pieces of advice that maybe you've heard or that you like to share with people when they ask you? One piece of advice that this is going back to the Mansfield News, all roads lead back. I love this, and it's one year it's of your life. It's about connecting the dots backward. Uh, 
when I when I resigned, I was just in tears because I had never resigned before. Usually, like I had internships, was moving on, right? So ended never naturally. fully resigned a full time job before, and I was just in tears. And he's like, Anne, just remember, everyone is replaceable. <laughs> It's true, and that's not to make anyone right. feel bad about themselves, but occasionally we put so much weight. Oh, what if I went on vacation, or what? What if I took my recharge for right. you know, six weeks? What would happen? Everyone is replaceable, yeah. and that's why it's so important to surround yourself with really strong, smart people throughout your career. Mm-hmm. And I would say, on both ends, that's true, right? So from the employee and employer perspective like we as a manager probably you've had the experience of like oh my god if this person leaves I'm gonna die like right. that and then they leave you're like okay that wasn't that bad we or when you leave that. a job so it's kind of like obviously your job is important but yeah not taking it yourself so seriously or right. it's so seriously and the goal actually should make yourself replaceable right so you can grow and develop in new and interesting areas and stretch beyond your current remit right that's really good a great way to think about it have you ever received just a truly terrible piece of career advice? <laughs> I wouldn't say it's terrible. I would say that the advice that I was given was more motivated by the person giving it uh-huh. rather than right. me and what my career aspirations were. So when I was leaving journalism to the other side, to go to the other side, what they called the dark side, right. <laughs> uh, a lot of people said, do not leave journalism. Yeah. You're leaving it too early. I had been at it for 10 years. And they were making me feel bad about that decision. They said, you have plenty of, of time to work on the corporate side of the fence. Just keep, keep on keeping on. And whenever the advice that's being given is more motivated by the giver than the recipient, then you have to question it. Yeah, it's really interesting because that's actually something I've heard from other women who I've interviewed for this podcast, same thing, that when they were leaving a job, switching especially to a different industry that ended up being, you know, an amazing move for them, their community within the workplace or in the industry was like, don't do it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's so hard not to listen to that. So it's good to hear, like, don't take it too much to heart. Well, and the great thing about Facebook is that we have career conversations all the time with our team members as well as our managers. It's a very open and transparent environment in that way. So it's not cloak and daggers, people having these like conversations in in back hallways and trying to see what's next for them. We actually foster that open and transparent environment. So we can identify those new opportunities within our team or outside of our team for the individuals who work for us. Uh, and and that enables their career success and ultimately feels good for you. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's kind of the direction we're all going in, especially mm-hmm. with just in general how people are kind of more flexible in the workplace and moving around maybe more or being more entrepreneurial. Like it allows you kind of almost to be entrepreneurial within the company to think about other ways, you know, other ways you can move around. We call it a jungle gym. I love it. Just moving around, kind yes. of not necessarily up, down, across. This looks good. Right. That's great. I love that. Do you have a particularly memorable office moment? Like any time in your career where in the office something truly exciting, memorable happened? I have two. Okay. Uh, one is sad and one is happy. Right. That's cool with you. Yes. I know this lightning round, but... but. <laughs> no, that's fine. We got, I asked many follow-up questions in the lightning round, so I think I've derailed it. So the first was when I was working at Adweek Magazine. Uh, 9-11 happened. Uh, and we went dark for a week um, in respect to the outside forces. But when we went back to the publishing schedule, I remember the cover of the magazine was when the selling stopped. Mm-hmm. Because nothing, nothing was important at that point right. in time. Just our family, friends, our loved ones, and the matters at hand. So it was a few week or a few a week after 9/11, and I had been wondering about the whereabouts of two of my friends who had worked in one of the towers, and the news came while I was at work. Oh my god! And I just remember just having this visceral reaction, shaking, emoting, 
going into my boss's office, Allison Fahey, God bless her, and she was on crutches at the time. She hobbled over to me, just knew, and just gave me that big hug and the comfort that I needed and gave me the time that I needed to process and really grieve mm-hmm. uh, what had happened. And that that just instilled in me such loyalty mm-hmm. to her yeah. as a manager because despite the fact that she was one of uh, – she, she was – Day to day, she expected the most out of right. you. So it was always very challenging, but in a very good way. I learned so much from her. But that instilled that that instilled such loyalty mm-hmm. and um, just having that familial uh, yeah. uh, effect at Adweek was pretty powerful. It's an amazing story. I mean, we often talk about how we spend more time with our coworkers and our family yeah. and all that. So to have those people support you when you really, really need it, no matter what the other relationships are, I think is so crucial yeah. to your happiness and loyalty. I think loyalty is a great way to put it. You definitely, um, I mean, that that's a really, really nice signal from her. Yeah. So my happy okay. one is... Uh, with Facebook IQ, uh, we had relaunched our website. So when we initially launched in 2014, we were this uh, very nascent insights practice, reliant on these one-off studies coming from our marketing science team with an English-only surface. And a couple years later, we relaunched the site into this robust insights offering of studies, tools, and resources designed to inform and inspire great marketing. And it was this amazing new digital presence, um, and it was across 10 different languages, so super specific to our audience's needs. And I got my team together to celebrate because we're moving so fast. Sometimes we're like, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? And we're super ambitious in that way that we didn't, we quite frequently weren't taking the time to celebrate. And I've really wanted to take the time to celebrate this monumental moment. And we did ping pong toast. Have you ever done those? Ping pong toast? Ping pong toast. (laughs) So it's where someone starts and they toast one of the team members and that team member toasts another team member. And it just goes around. So everybody is recognized and everybody gets super specific. So it's not just a general cheers to us for doing this and it was just such a powerful moment and a powerful celebration and I would say that is a really good piece of advice for people who are moving Mm -hmm. fast in such a fast-moving world is to take those moments to recognize and to celebrate. That's great. I I, I just was um, heard this management tip actually about that it's actually much more effective management to praise someone for something specific than just generally praise them. Even if you're constantly giving like positive feedback, when you give that specific feedback of you did a great job on this, so that sounds like a, a more fun way to do it maybe with alcohol. So Yes, yes. We had champagne. <laughs> that it sounds was, it was good. great. And that happened in the office. Yes. You were drinking in the office. That's such a great story. Well, thank you for sharing those stories. Before we wrap up, what are some things you're reading, listening to, watching? Like what's the best content you've consumed recently? I listen to a lot of podcasts, and this will be on repeat. Not this particular (laughs) podcast, but the podcast that you guys produce will be added to my list. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, So I listen to a lot of podcasts from Fresh Air to TED Talks to Oprah's Super Soul Sundays. And uh, I listened to one this past week with Gabrielle Bernstein. Do you know her? She's Mm -hmm. like a, a guru for the next generation yeah and she said something that really hit me um and i wanted to share it it's obstacles are detours in the right direction obstacles are detours in the right direction love that quite frequently we think of obstacles as just another challenge to overcome and oh woe is me but if you think about it is actually this is happening for a reason Mm -hmm. and it will pivot me in the right direction then you become more in control of the situation rather than the situation controlling you i love that it's also like don't turn back right like if you're when you hit obstacles keep on moving exactly that's great oh i love that so um 
when do you consume your podcast? Do you all the time? Are you listening to them or I run? Okay. Uh, so I'm training for the Chicago Marathon wow. right now, and I do a lot of short runs, and I'm starting to do my long runs, and I listen to podcasts while I run. I also go on long hikes, um, so it's quite frequently when I'm moving or cleaning around yeah, that, my house. That's why I'm like the dishes always. Exactly. Listening Might to as well podcasts. get smarter while I'm doing it. That's great. Well, if I've taken anything away from this episode, which you've given us amazing advice, but also I think you, and I don't know if you have to think about this, have such a great balance because you have this great career, but you're thinking about your visions, listening to other content, taking care of yourself. I love it. So it's very inspirational. Thank Thank you for sharing everything. Where can our listeners find you? Do you social media or something you'd like to share? Yes. Um, so they can find what me and my team work on at facebook.com slash IQ. We also have a Facebook IQ Facebook page, which is great news. <laughs> um, and they can find me on Twitter at Ann M. Mack. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grise, Mandy Carr, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to the team at New York Wiki who supports us, including, but not limited to, everyone at Kellen, Deidre Wyeth, and June Price, who designed the show's logo and does all of our graphics. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to nywici.org slash podcast. That's nywiki.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.